0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell, part of Headmere.com. I'm Jeff Mecham, and today's episode is another addition to our Residency Application Toolkit miniseries. We're joined today by pediatric otolaryngologist and medical education enthusiast, Dr. Sarah Bowe, to discuss the NRMP charting outcomes report. Thanks for coming back on the show, Dr. Bowe.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to talking about this.
0: Like I already mentioned, today we'll be taking a deep dive into the NRMP charting outcomes reports to help gain insight into the otolaryngology match and hopefully give applicants data to help guide their efforts when preparing to apply to ENT. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Bo with us. In addition to her medical degree, Dr. Bo has a Master of Education. One of her interests includes helping better understand the match process, and she's written extensively about trends over time in the ENT match. Dr. Beau, before we begin, what reports are available from the NRMP and where can listeners find them?
1: So I think I'll start by saying kind of where you can find them. And it may even be helpful to go to the nrmp.org website and look around a little bit and identify some of the specific documents that we're going to talk about today. Um, And so nrmp.org is the main site. And specifically, you can find this under the main residency match data and reports section. also, you can go to a search engine and type in NRMP charting outcomes report, which is the specific one that we'll be talking about today. Uh, in terms of the reports themselves, uh, in a way, there's three broad categories, and so they list them as data survey and research reports. And so in terms of the data reports, the main residency match results are really the overall summary. And then these are broken down further by state, specialty, and applicant type. In addition, there are also options by program. And these are put together over five-year interval spans. And so from kind of 2016 to 2020 are the most recent ones that are available on there. There's also information in the data reports in terms of impact of length of rank order list of match out, match results, and this is from the 2002 to 2020 kind of time span. And then when it comes to the survey reports, there's both program director reports and applicant surveys, and these actually alternate kind of every other year, um, so there'll be like a program director report, then the next year there'll be an applicant report, and then kind of going back and forth. And then in terms of the charting outcomes, and so this is kind of the research section, there are those that are focused on MDs and then as well as DOs and IMGs. And so those are talking about doctor of medicine, doctor of osteopathic medicine, and international medical graduates. And so today we're going to really be focusing on the MD part.
0: Yeah. So for today's episode, what exactly is the charting outcomes report and how frequently is it updated?
1: So the charting outcomes report really, as it says, is a report on outcomes in the match that's generated by the NRMP. And so it was first published in 2006, And it's come out roughly every two years, although if you look at the numbers, sometimes it's three years, sometimes it's one. But really, for the most part, more recently, it's every two years. And this used to be lumped together as an all-inclusive document up through 2014. And in that one document, there were two categories. And so really, you had the USMD seniors and then everyone else that was lumped into an independent applicants category. And so that is USMD graduates, DO seniors and graduates, and IMGs. And then basically due to the heterogeneity of that mix of the independent group, in 2016, the decision was made to really break those down into distinct groups. And so there were three total, and that was USMD medical school seniors USDO medical school seniors and graduates together, and international medical graduates. And then the international medical graduates are always looked at in terms of U.S. citizen or non-U.S. citizen. And then in 2020, the, they actually even further changed those documents, and the USDO was actually just focused on seniors and didn't also include the graduates.
0: What data is included in that report then, and where does it come from? So
1: broadly speaking, um, they focus on match success, and that is really defined as matching into the preferred specialty, so that essentially first specialty. Um, And they also look at specialty preference as well as some ranking information. Um, And again, these are kind of the NRMP main residency match specifically. And so some of the aspects that they look at are the impact of USMLE step one and step two CK scores, academic degrees, alpha omega alpha status, as well as research, work, and volunteer experiences. And all of these are self-reported in the NRMP data that we're talking about here. And so... Applicants are asked to answer questions on this form, similar to what they do in the ERAS common application form. And so completion of this information is optional. And so applicants can actually consent or decline to participate in these research studies. Um, And this is important when you're thinking about, okay, well, you know, how many applicants are actually included when we're looking at what information is coming out of these reports. And so um, there can be bias that's introduced from that self-report aspect as well as participation bias. And so certainly some sections have better response rates than others. Uh, the more objective information potentially um, that is available you know, more readily and easily is the step scores. And so usually only about 1% to 2% of that data is missing in terms of the number of applicants given that information, um, although some sections like work, volunteer, and research experiences are missing upwards of 10% of the data. And so... At one point, again, because this is self-report, the NRMP actually asked medical schools to verify step scores for students, and the results were pretty similar in terms of the self-report and the verified information. And so essentially, the NRMP has stated that these self-reported scores could be trusted, and so they've continued to be included in the analysis.
0: So what kind of things does the NRMP charting outcomes overlook or not include?
1: So certainly here, we're talking about what what data and what information is available. Um, and really, a lot of this is fairly objective information. Um, and so certainly, when we're thinking about kind of that qualitative versus quantitative information, again, more of this is quantitative. It's by the numbers. And so really, we can gain some insights from the NRMP charting outcomes in terms of success at matching. Um, but it really doesn't have any of those other pieces. So it doesn't have information really about who you are as a person. Um, you know, it doesn't have those aspects of your life experiences that you have inserted or instilled into some of the other experiences, whether they be research, work, or volunteer. It's really just the numbers themselves and not necessarily um, the, the quality or the impact of what you've done in those domains. Um, and certainly, you know, this is earlier in the process. They're looking at what helps with the successful match, but they don't have information on anything that happened in terms of the... The interviewing stage. And likewise, aspects of whether it be letters of recommendation or course grades or evaluation or what used to be called the dean's letter and more recently has been the medical student performance evaluation, all of those pieces are missing. So we really just kind of get a more big picture view of these factors that are helping in terms of
0: match success. Yeah, I think that's important when looking at these outcome reports, because so often we get so focused on the objective that we forget that there's a lot of information behind the scenes. That being said, I think there's still a lot to take from it. So how many applicants are actually included in the report and specifically how many of the ENT cohort participated in the 2020 report?
1: So, overall, there was a total of 19,326 USMD seniors that submitted certified rank order lists in the 2020 main residency match. And so, out of those, only 7.2% did not consent to participate in the research. So, meaning that 92.8% or Almost 18,000 applicants are included in this charting outcomes at the match. Specifically for ENT, there was a total of 421 MD senior applicants, and 414 of those were included in the analysis, so actually 98.3%. So really, this is very, very close to a complete data set. You know, certainly it actually is better than even the overall match. And so it is a little bit of variation in terms of the different segments of information. Again, this is self-report. And as we mentioned earlier, some sections have a little bit more missing data. But overall, anywhere from 340 to 400 applicants responded for each of the various categories.
0: Let's move into the results from the report itself. And I'll note that the opening section includes tables and charts for all specialties, and then there's following sections that break down into more granular data for each specialty. But rather than talk about them separately, we're going to jump back and forth between complementary statistics and figures. And since we're going to be talking about the data and numbers, it can be a little hard to follow. I'd encourage any listeners, if you're able to, to go up and open the report and look at the data yourself uh, as we go through it, if you'd like. So let's start with the question that's on everyone's mind when looking at the charting outcomes, how competitive of a specialty is ENT? And in other words, how difficult is it to match into otolaryngology?
1: So there are, in some ways, a couple different ways that people may look at the data and try to determine some of that competitiveness. Um, and so certainly overall in ENT, there are roughly 350 total spots. Um, and that may vary just a little bit kind of up or down, uh, depending on the given year and if we've added more spots. And so in 2020, there were 493 total applicants for these 350 spots. And for this, there was 414 MD applicants. And so when you break that down, there's roughly 1.41 total applicants per position. So almost one and a half times as many applicants per position. And there was 1.18 MD applicants per position. And so when you look at 2020 across all specialties, there was generally enough positions for USMD seniors who preferred a given specialty, except for five. And so neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, ENT, plastic surgery, and vascular surgery all had more MD applicants than there were for positions. And so that potentially speaks to one component of the competitiveness and these five specialties often also have another metric not necessarily included in this report of applications per applicant. And so many times that's also looked at as how competitive a specialty might be because applicants are applying to more programs, knowing the competitiveness that's been there and trying to maximize their opportunities. And so another component to that is the actual match rate. So in 2020, for the ENT match rate, there was 310 MD applicants that matched to the 414 spots. And so that was a match rate of 74.9%. And so out of the total spots, there was 310 out of 493, so a 62.8%. And perhaps expectantly, there were five specialties that had the lowest MD senior match rates, all being less than 80%. And that was plastics, ortho, neurosurgery, and vascular, along with ENT again. And that you know likely makes sense in the fact that there were more of those applicants than positions available. And so, again, as I mentioned, these were less than 80%, whereas the overall match rate success for USMD seniors is 91.2% in 2020. Um, And so those are different ways to look at some of the competitiveness. Now, we did just have the match, which happened. Um, And so certainly we don't have charting outcomes data at this point in time. And again, that usually only happens kind of on an every year basis. But in terms of comparing some of the numbers we just talked about from the 2021 match, there are advanced data tables that are available. This year, there were zero unfilled spots. In total, there was 559 applicants that submitted a rank list. And there was 454 MD senior applicants. So out of those 454 MD senior applicants, 310 matched. And that's a 68.3% success rate for matching. In total, again, there was the 559 total applicants. All the slots were filled, which was 350. And so that was a 62.6% match rate. Um, And so certainly you can see there, again, there is a fair amount of competitiveness for those slots for otolaryngology. And this was for this year, 2021, Overall match success rate for USMD seniors was 92.8, so fairly close to what it was for last year. And then again, those rates for success for otolaryngology were on the lower side, suggesting that competitiveness. Uh, I would like to take just one moment to mention the fact that these numbers that we're talking about are from the NRMP. And so they do not represent ERAS or that electronic residency application service. And so there always is a little bit of a discrepancy between these two numbers, as NRMP represents those who sign up for the match and sometimes varies from those originally submitting an application. And so actually in 2021, there were 632 applicants that signed up for ERAS. There were 524 MD applicants. And so when you look at that, there was 524 MD applicants for ERAS. But when you look at the NRMP numbers, there was 454. So there is always slight kind of drop in those numbers. And potentially, um, that variation represents also a change from ERAS is the application part, NRMP is the submitting of a rank list part. And so, again, when we're looking at these numbers, we have a lot of gaps. And so we have application and match numbers, but we don't get those numbers in terms of the screening phase or the reviewing phase, or the interview phase, or the ranking phase. And so we miss some of those aspects along the spectrum when we're looking at the numbers. And so this charting outcomes is really based on the information that's available from that match piece. And so we're going to go a little bit more into some of the other um, numbers. But as you'll see, there tends to be some consistency in terms of that competitiveness when we look at some of these other aspects of the report.
0: So in clarifying, the individuals who submitted a application through ERAS but are not included in the NRMP numbers, what happened to them and why aren't they submitting rank lists?
1: In terms of speculating a little bit, you know, Obviously, there can potentially be some aspects of People's individual kind of personal lives that may may come up that cause them to have to either pull out of the NRMP match, and then there can be aspects more from the process itself. And so you may submit that application and send them out, but then subsequently really don't get any interviews whatsoever. And so really the likelihood that you're going to submit any kind of certified rank list is not there. And so sometimes as we look actually at the NRMP numbers, they may not really even be telling the full story on the number of applicants to a given specialty. And so there's potentially even more data that we could pull out to look at. And it's something where across these larger organizations that have this data, there's not a lot of cross-communication and analysis. And so we get the information from the NRMP, but we don't have the information on even some subset of applicants that may not even get to that ranking stage.
0: I know a big point of worry for students applying uh, to any specialty, but especially otolaryngology, is the step examinations. Uh, Would you mind talking about what the NRMP report tells us about trends for step scores and the probability of matching? Let's start first with step one.
1: Uh, So the mean USMLE step one score for ENT in 2020 is quite impressive. It's 248 for matched applicants. Perhaps also just as impressive, it's 243 for unmatched applicants. And as kind of essentially a, a side note, for successfully matched applicants overall in all specialties, It's 234 for those that match, as I mentioned, and 226 for unmatched. So you can see there that even in our unmatched cohort, uh, that number is 243 compared to match success ones, which are 234. So certainly in terms of the number that you're seeing from a USMLE Step 1 standpoint, um, it's quite, quite high for otolaryngology. And so when you look at this, it seems that a few points on the step one really may make the difference. But actually, uh, when you look in particular towards the earlier part um, of the charting outcomes, uh, there is a graph that shows basically, actually, the step one score is essentially broken down by interquartile range. So essentially kind of the middle 50% of the scores. And when you look for otolaryngology... The matched and unmatched actually have a substantial overlap between these two groups. So the bottom half of matched applicants and the top half of unmatched applicants actually have the same range of scores. And so broadly speaking, in reviewing the data across ENT and and really all specialties, there's no question that a higher step one score has been associated with a better chance of matching. In fact, the probability of matching really is directly proportional to the step one score. And in the report itself, there's a graph. Um, Again, there's graphs available for all specialties as well as for otolaryngology. And so specifically under the otolaryngology section, graph OTO-2 It goes through data that's been accumulated from 2018 to 2020 and really shows that increasing trend across USMLE scores. Um, And then it does start to reach a plateau as the scores get higher. But for every step, it really still um, moves along in terms of a higher proportion of matching. You can actually get a little bit more uh, details of the data by looking at one of the charts in the document. And so that's chart 003. And this breaks down matched and unmatched status based on score ranges. Um, And so it really suggests that passing certain thresholds can help potentially improve the chances of matching. But again, as I mentioned, once you kind of get upwards of a certain point, it probably is not specifically helpful. And so, again, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's a lot of numbers in this, so I'm going to kind of walk through uh, this piece slowly. But in terms of that chart, Odo 3, if you're in the score range of 211 to 220, there's a 33% chance of matching. Then if you move up to 221 to 230, there's roughly 62% chance of matching. And that's actually pretty close to that 231 to 240 range, which is about 65%. Um, And so really that 221 to 240 are are relatively similar. Then 241 to 250 is a 76% chance of matching. Um, And really anything above 251 is actually around 84% chance of matching. Um, And so you can really see that kind of upward trend, although there is some tightness around that 221 to 240. And so really the takeaway is, you know, to try to do as well as you can on your step scores, but it's still possible to match with lower scores. You know, certainly if you have a lower score, so I would say particularly less than 230, it's important to really build up the other aspects of your application.
0: So let's talk about step 2CK now, specifically with the upcoming changes of step 1 to pass fail. Do you think that step two will become more important?
1: In general, I do suspect that step two will probably be used more in the future as USMLE moves to the pass-fail, which is slated to happen fairly soon, in a way, January 1st of 2022. Ultimately, the literature itself does not contain a lot of convincing studies to support that USMLE scores correlate with broader aspects of residency success and kind of moving along, although there has been correlation with success in passing the boards the first time. But overall, it does not necessarily connect to a certain score such that the higher your score for sure, the better in terms of your success at passing the boards, meaning that there have been some individuals with very high scores that certainly can still fail. But broadly speaking, the data tends to indicate that as long as applicants score 230 or better on USMLE Step 1, then they have a 95% chance of passing the written qualifying exam on the first step. And that is from actually a study that was done by Liana Puskas et al., USMLE and otolaryngology predicting board performance. And so it actually took a while for us to have that specific information in otolaryngology because of just the way our kind of scores and everything are reported and collected. But relatively similar information has been found um, in some of the other specialties. So depending on a given specialty, um, somewhere in the range of kind of 220 to 230, um has been correlated with success on passing um, the written qualifying exams on the first attempt. Um, And so, as I mentioned, again, kind of for otolaryngology, 230 has been generally kind of set as the threshold. And then that number does move up for USMLE Step 2. It's closer to 240. And so currently, Step 2 is usually not required to apply for ENT residency positions, although may be required by the time applicants are ranked. And overall, it's essentially been a little bit more de-emphasized because of this, because certainly if you didn't need to take it and you had a good step one score, then it was potentially better to just say, don't do it. You know, anecdotally, Many people only took that step two if potentially they had a lower step one score and were trying to show the ability to kind of work towards improvement for a better score. You know, in terms of the charting outcomes, when you look overall at the data for step two compared to step one, it's pretty similar, again, such that as you increase in step two score... You have a higher likelihood of matching. And again, the slight difference in terms of kind of that number that I mentioned before you know, 230 on USMLE step one versus 240 on USMLE step two, they're roughly similar as there's a different percentile curve for step two. Um, and so it tends to be about 10 points higher on the score um, when you look at those two.
0: What can we learn about research projects and experiences from this report and what kind of research should applicants interested in ENT have completed to be considered, quote unquote, competitive for the match?
1: So in the Charting Outcomes report, the research is really laid out in two ways. Uh, One is research experiences or research projects. And then the other is number of abstracts, presentations, and publications. And so maybe first we'll essentially kind of talk about the abstracts, presentations, and publications. Again, you know, in this document, we talked about the fact that it's very quantitative. Um, And even within this section, all of these different types of kind of research are lumped together, essentially. And so it can make it a little bit difficult to really interpret the value out of this information. You know, conceivably, publications should maybe be thought of and weighted more than an abstract itself. Um, And really, again, in the numbers, it's difficult to distinguish, well, you know, are these happening at the local level? Are they regional or national presentations? You know, in terms of the publications, are they peer-reviewed? Are they invited? Or are they potentially more in a kind of magazine or bulletin format and so you can't really get those details and so you end up really with just a crude number. So in otolaryngology the overwhelming majority of applicants so 85.6% had over 5 in this category. And then when you look at them broken down by match status the mean number was 13.7 for those that matched and 9.5 for those that unmatched or those that were unmatched. And really both of those uh, are a fair amount bigger than other specialties. So when you look at all specialties, it was 6.9% average for those who matched and 6.8% for those who went unmatched. So again, speaking a little bit maybe to that competitiveness aspect you're seeing that even in the unmatched category 9.5 kind of abstracts presentations or publications are being done and so that's you know larger than when you look at the all specialties evaluation And so I will just make one point, and we kind of didn't, I think, maybe talk about this up front, but there is now an interactive charting outcomes tool um, that is online, and this does give a little bit more information and the ability to separate some of the statistics into abstracts, presentations, and publications themselves. So then when we look at the other component of research, there is this research experiences piece. And again, it's hard to really know, you know, what to glean from this. What is a research experience? So, you know, in the ERAS common application form that's done, some applicants might list an individual project as an experience. Others may actually put an entire group of kind of their lab experiences or working with a particular PI on either kind of clinical research and put that all together as a research experience, in which case maybe multiple kind of projects are all happening under that piece. And so for otolaryngology, the majority of applicants listed over five experiences. So about 68% listed that. And again, when you look at the mean number those that matched, it was 6.1. And those that were unmatched was 5.5. And so the difference was half an experience. Um, And really, when you look at the match rate success across kind of all of those, regardless of the number, it was roughly between 65 and 75% for all of the different experience numbers. Um, And so it's more, you know, kind of likely an indicator that this value maybe doesn't really help us too much in in understanding that goal towards success and matching, and really in terms of the products of those efforts. So the abstracts, presentations, and publications are probably um, you know more useful to look at. And then you know in terms of overall, you know certainly demonstrated involvement and interest in research. Is considered to be a fairly important factor when you look at the program director survey. So, again, you know, at the beginning of this, we talked about a lot of the different reports that are available. Um, and the program director survey asks many questions in terms of what aspects of the application are important. And so, this is going to be discussed in detail um, in another episode, but certainly uh, research experiences are definitely considered to be pretty valuable.
0: And what about work and volunteer experiences?
1: So, you know, similar to the research experiences, again, this is really just a number. And so similarly, it's hard to really get a lot of meaningful information as to how much this understanding this helps in terms of uh, charting success in the match. And so, you know, for work experiences, again, there was a relatively even distribution of applicants in terms of the number of these experiences, ranging from none all the way up to five plus. And none of these really substantially impacted the chance of matching. It wasn't that five plus was a much higher rate compared to two. And the mean number for matched was 3.5 and unmatched was 3.5. 3.6. And so, again, similar. you know, those are very similar to one another. So certainly, you know, knowing that that number really means something, the high, you know, the more experiences you put, um, it does not really indicate that. And then in terms of volunteer experiences, you know, it's important certainly to to note these. And what volunteer experiences specifically means is that it doesn't fall into the categories of research or work. And work is specifically defined as something that you are paid to do. And so really, you know, anything that is not research or work could be listed as volunteer experiences. Again, whether it was kind of none through five plus there was not really a predisposition to success in matching based on that number. In some ways, it was actually a little interesting when looking at the charting uh, charting outcomes for this as the mean number for matched was 8.6 and for unmatched was 10. And so really, you know, the takeaway from these is that focusing more on the quality of those experiences and how you relay that in your applications um, is probably more valuable than specifically the quantity of experiences. Um, And so really kind of being genuine in those experiences and and sharing what you've done um, is probably going to give more information in your application as opposed to listing just numerous experiences that maybe, you know, are are one-off experiences as opposed to a more longitudinal experience.
0: One of the most important takeaways from the charting outcomes report is regarding contiguous ranks. Would you be able to define what a contiguous rank means and what the report tells us about how that relates to the likelihood of a successful match?
1: So, contiguous rank means the number of programs ranked in a first choice specialty before a program in another specialty appears on a rank order list. And so, if some applicants dual apply, then those contiguous ranks actually can be broken up. So, kind of affect the overall number of contiguous ranks if a second specialty is placed in the middle of that list. In the case of otolaryngology, um, that's usually pretty rare. So take, for example, we've been talking about 2020, 92.2% of applicants actually only ranked ENT positions in their rank lists. And so therefore, kind of the number of contiguous ranks is going to be, you know, a pretty valid number when you look at otolaryngology. And so Honestly, the story is pretty clear that having more contiguous ranks increases the likelihood of a successful match. And so again, if you, you know have your charting outcomes uh, for reference, there is a figure that's graph 801. one um, and that is a regression that basically uses data of candidates from 2018 to 2020 and shows the probability of matching based on the number of contiguous ranks. And really, once you've reached a certain number of ranks, again, kind of almost similar to how the USMLE Step 1 score looks, um, there tends to be kind of diminishing returns where you don't get too much gain probability-wise and percentage-wise as you are coming across a certain number. And so for otolaryngology, around 12 to 13 contiguous ranks, the probability of matching is around 90%. And so certainly it it still goes up above that number, but the incremental gains that you get is quite small compared to below that 12 to 13 number. And then, you know, really another important point to make is that it is possible to match with only a few ranks. Certainly, the likelihood is lower, around five ranks, but the probability of matching at that point is still around 50%. Um, And so I think it's important to mention that if you do have fewer interviews, fewer contiguous ranks, it's important to be more careful um, in, you know, essentially backup planning and, and being prepared for the soap process. And there actually was a really great podcast on this topic that was done recently. So, um, you know, I would suggest having some of that information to think about as you're going through the process.
0: So there's one final graphic I wanted to talk about that is kind of a hodgepodge of a few. It involves AOA membership, being a graduate of one of the medical schools with top 40 NIH funding and dual degrees. Uh, What do you think we can take from that graphic?
1: This is totally a numbers game, right? So we'll go through these kind of briefly and quickly. So in terms of AOA, which is Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society, you know, and certainly for the most part, this is associated with really kind of academic performance at a given institution. And AOA status can be helpful, but it's also complex as not all schools offer it. And also it may be offered too late in the process. And so I think an important point to make is to make sure that you disclose that in the application process so that programs are aware that opportunity may not even be available to you. So for otolaryngology, about a third of applicants um, had AOA status. And in terms of those that did have that status, about 84% matched, um, as opposed to those that did not have AOA status, where it was closer to 69%. And so, again, that's specifically talking about individuals where that opportunity, you know, was present. Certainly, if you if you don't have AOA because your institution doesn't have it, um, then, it's, you know, not something that's available in terms of kind of making that judgment. And then in terms of top 40 NIH funding, in many ways, this is potentially used as a surrogate for students that um, went to maybe institutions where there was an interest or an opportunity to do research. Um, and this information is really um, directly from the NIH website where they they kind of release in terms of which programs or which institutions are in that top 40. Roughly one-third of applicants came from one of the top 40 NIH funding schools. And this did correlate with match success. So in terms of those that were in the top 40, 85% of those matched successfully. Whereas those applicants that came from a school that was not in the top 40, it was about a 70% match success. You know, I think it's important to say that With this, we are realizing that these institutions conceivably have more access to research opportunities. And so we talked earlier about the abstracts and the presentations and publications being correlated with match success. And so certainly some of these interrelate with one another. Um, And so I think that as we look at this information, it's also important to remember that there is probably some impact and influence from some of these measures as opposed to others. Um, And so they're not really standing specifically alone when you're looking at match success. In terms of the dual degrees, only a few applicants in 2020 had PhDs, and really the match rate was pretty similar, about 80% for those with and 74% or 75% for those without. And then in terms of applicants with other graduate degrees, again, the match rates um, were pretty similar, so roughly 75% for both of those, and about 17% of applicants had other graduate degrees. And so when we look kind of across all of these, you know, maybe some of the takeaways are AOA status can certainly be helpful, but it's it's definitely not required. You know, students from schools with higher NIH funding it is associated with a greater likelihood of matching. Although, you know, whether that is more directly just the institution, it probably is not the case. It's probably more the access to research opportunities and what comes along with that, as opposed to potentially really just the institution itself. And then in terms of dual degrees, they really don't inherently give an advantage. And so certainly if you're doing it for the education and the experience for yourself, then by all means, definitely do it. But um, it really has not been shown, at least in terms of these charting outcomes, to, to gain an advantage um, in relation to match success.
0: So that was a lot of information, and I think it's really good to go through each of it. But what would you say are the overarching takeaways from the charting outcomes report?
1: I definitely think that we've touched on the fact that really the broad majority of this are are numbers, um, and you know when it comes to quantitative information, you know it's helpful to have that information, but it really it really misses the mark on. You know, what makes each applicant unique? Um, And that really is all of the other components that come into them as an individual applying. And so while there are, you know, some of these general trends, it certainly doesn't mean that if you don't have AOA or if you have a slightly lower USMLE score or you don't have tons and tons of publications or presentations, but you have a long committed experience in a research lab and working and kind of grinding through that work toward a project that you can't really showcase those things and still reach a successful match. And so I think you know, as much as you can, trying to really be genuine and true in your application to present, uh, you know, everything that you've done to get to that point. And really, you know, everyone that has gotten through into medical school and through medical school and are applying, um, you know, there's there's so much that you have to showcase. And so um, while the numbers can can certainly be intimidating and, and recently, you know, the process for Applying is is stressful as you know there definitely are many many more applicants than than spots. I think it's still important to really kind of share as much as you can. And if if ENT is is really truly your interest, um, then trying to apply, you know, I think as you get to the point of if you kind of get through and get to that through the interview process and are and are looking at ranking, that really ranking. All the programs that you want, and in the order that you want it. It's not really helpful to try to estimate, you know, where your chances might be best per se. Um, but really, giving yourself the chance to have that order in the way you want it. You now, certainly, that doesn't mean you should maybe just go totally for the most highly competitive programs. Um, it's good to certainly have a, have a mix in terms of where you think you may want to end up. But, but I definitely think it's important to you know think about where you, you feel most comfortable um, as you kind of go through that interview process.
0: Are there any other resources available like the NRMP Charting Outcomes Report that may help applicants gather data?
1: So we touched on this maybe a little bit, but there there is now the NRMP has an interactive charting outcomes tool. Um, it really it lets you essentially kind of pick a specialty and input different aspects of your application that we've talked about here and essentially kind of play a numbers game um, a little bit in terms of some of the more specific components that we've mentioned. There also is something called the Texas STAR, S-T-A-R, which stands for Seeking Transparency in Application to Residency. And so this is actually a survey-based study of applicants that are trying to, again, kind of garner more information about the application process to help with some of the transparency in how different programs look at and potentially kind of sift through applications and think about interviews. Um, And so in 2020, uh, they actually had uh, 7,265 responses um, from over 15,000 students in 115 medical schools. So again, you know, there really is, I think, a lot of desire from the academic medical community to try to help make this process of matching applicants and to their residency programs conceivably more successful, there is the AAMC also has a residency explorer, which gives some information on programs themselves. It's been out for a little while, but just in the past year or two, otolaryngology was included. Um, And you can search by the different residency programs. um, And they do give some information as to potentially certain filters and things that they look at in the application process. Um, So there's some more information there. And then many people that are looking at Otolaryngology may be familiar with Otomatch, um, which is basically an online crowdsourced spreadsheet that has, again, kind of self reporting information. Um, and so sometimes there can be some essentially almost response bias in the spreadsheet in terms of applicants that maybe. A little bit at the extreme ends of each spectrum in terms of competitiveness, but that um, is, has been around for a very long time and has a lot of information that can also be gleaned about um, the different programs.
0: Great. Well, I think this has been a very good discussion, and I've really appreciated hearing some of your insight into this as we break it down. Dr. Bo, do you have any final parting advice for applicants or medical students interested in otolaryngology?
1: I think I mentioned a couple of these just a few minutes ago, but certainly putting the effort to do as much as you can to really reveal who you are in the application. If you don't have perhaps the quote-unquote highest USMLE scores, but you know, really more if you don't meet some of those thresholds that we've been talking about. Um, so if you're behind potentially in some of these measures in one area, um, it can be helpful to really try to make sure that your application is strong um, in some of the other areas that we've talked about. But really, you know, this is charting outcomes. Again, it's very much by the numbers. And certainly some of these can give some guidance in terms of overall competitiveness of an applicant. But I think that there also can be really a lot gained from the relationships that you form and some of the guidance and mentoring that you can get along the way. I think that you know, reaching out. I think one of the harder things sometimes is the when you don't have a home program. But there are certainly opportunities on the horizon where uh, there are efforts being made to really create some more communities for um, medical students, even kind of on the national level, to really help foster some of the connections and things that are required to be able to do the projects and to to get some of these different aspects of the application that are being sought after by programs.
0: All right, well, thanks, Dr. Bo. We really appreciate you coming on and breaking this down for us. And that about wraps it up for our show. So thanks for tuning in. Keep an eye out for more episodes for our residency application toolkit in the future. And we'll catch you next time.